Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains references to war and everything that goes with it. Listener discretion is advised. Kilda, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 118, Fortress. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara, on the rohe of Muaupoko, Taranaki Whanganui, Te Atiawa and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons, such as Violet, Alan and secretly Ed Sheeran, apparently. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash historyaotearoa. Last time, we talked about the weapons that Māori used, primarily for melee in close quarters. Today, we're going to move on to a part of Māori warfare that was so important that when it arrived on the scene, it forever changed the way Māori waged war, dominating the military and even physical landscape well into the 19th century. This innovation was called the pā. Although Māori arrived in the mid to late 13th century, it wasn't until the 16th century that hill forts began to appear, the English name for pa. By that point, moa and other large birds had gone extinct, so Māori had switched a lot of their food production into horticulture. Unlike hunting birds, which could be a rather nomadic endeavour, growing crops required you to stay mostly within a fixed area. Hence why we find pa close to sites where food was grown, and also why we see almost all pa in the country north of modern Hastings. In fact, according to We Are Here, an excellent book of maps on Aotearoa's geography, if you draw a line east to west just below Hastings, there are 7,000 pa north of that line 
and 321 south of it. This doesn't include the South Island, where there are an additional 144, located mostly in the Marlborough Sounds and Nelson regions. This is because the tropical crops that Māori were growing didn't do so well in the lower North Island, or pretty much anywhere in the South Island, except near Golden Bay, which is near Nelson. So, there is a clear positive correlation between where pa were located and where agriculture was a dominant form of acquiring food. In other words, we find pa where people grew crops. But why? A major reason pa were built was to protect the kumara crop after harvest. This was different to the rest of tropical Polynesia, as their crops would usually be harvested a couple times a year, and be growing all year round, along with an abundance of foraged food sources also being available. In the more temperate Aotearoa, however, kumara could only be harvested once per year and there were less food sources during the colder months, meaning you needed to be more careful with your food and ensure proper storage over the winter to keep you and your whanau fed. We talked about this in episodes 67 to 70 if you want more details. Elsewhere in Polynesia, a raid that takes most of your food was bad but not necessarily completely devastating. You could still go out and forage, hunt, or fish pretty easily. Whereas in Aotearoa, a raid that stole your kumara crop could mean starvation during the winter. So it was vital to not just store them correctly to protect against rot, but you also needed to protect them from others. Hence, putting them in a par. Although that was the main reason, other reasons for building par could be to help control and protect vital trade routes, to show off a hapu's power, or perhaps they were even built as a sort of dedication to Rongo, god of agriculture. That protecting his children was seen as a religious duty, and the par structures were almost like symbols of Rongo's power or dedicated to him. Again, keeping the kumara crop protected was extremely important, it was life or death. So it isn't a huge leap to think that people may have given this some spiritual significance to really drive home the point. As well as agriculture, rongo is the atua of peace. So it's also possible that pa were seen as keeping peace between hapu by the fact they were so hard to capture. This is a bit of an out-there theory though, and it would have been a very recent shift in Māori religious practice if it were true. However, we do know that very sacred and tapu items were held within pā to protect them. Godsticks, carvings, toimoko, and even some human remains were kept within the walls, making pa centres of religious activity and spiritual connection just by their concentration of tapu items. 
Naturally, as pa became more prevalent, meaning Māori became more fixed to a single area, and thus their rohe became more defined, long-distance trade reduced, in particular in the exchange of obsidian, ponamu, and stone adzes, items that could only be harvested in certain areas of the country. That's not to say trade stopped, it didn't, just that it's easier to trade if groups of people are travelling to various spots during the year, meaning two groups might frequently come into contact more easily. As opposed to being in roughly the same spot year round, and at a mostly fixed distance, which means there needs to be a bit more motivation and effort to engage in trade. What's interesting about when pa were built is that although they were first seen in the early 16th century, corresponding with Māori switching to agriculture as their main food source, most pa seem to have been constructed 200 years later, after 1700 as per radiocarbon dating. However, according to a source from 2022, less than 2% of pa have been radiocarbon dated. So that trend may not continue if more analysis is done on other sites. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, pa were prevalent all the way into the 19th century, and were still effective even in the gunpowder era, with some modifications. Some pa were purely military in nature, as defensive positions to protect food stores, or as a place to retreat to if the nearby kaina had to be evacuated. But others could have villages just outside the walls, with a fair amount of people living out their everyday lives. Most pa contained at least a few houses, especially in the centre where the rangatira lived, along with some food storage. Some European missionaries recorded pa with a couple hundred whare within them, but this was most likely the upper end. Generally, pa wouldn't be that big, especially given some of those houses would likely be for storing food. With the mention of kaina, villages, it's important to note that pa were distinct from kaina, even though they were both a type of human settlement. The main difference between them being, pa were designed to be fortified positions with man-made walls, and their locations were picked based on natural defences, whereas kaina were just unfortified villages, placed wherever it was best to live, often near a river, lake, or the coast. The position of a pa was extremely important. Walls, trenches, and other defences were built around a pa to make it more defensible. But those took time, effort, and materials to make. As such, it was usually a good idea to place pa in areas which had good natural defences, meaning they didn't have to put as much effort into building their own to compensate. The kinds of locations that were favoured were coasts, headlands, harbours, on top of hills, near rivers, or some combination of those. This meant that the angles of approach were more limited, or in other words, it took more effort to get to the par to siege it, and you could only walk to it from a certain side. 
For example, the pa out at Tairoa Head on the Otago Peninsula is hilly and on a headland, so it could only be approached from limited angles, due to most of it being surrounded by steep cliffs that led straight into the sea, and anyone who did try to approach would be a bit puffed by the time they got there. So natural defences were great, because you didn't really have to do anything to take advantage of them, but they weren't perfect. So they would be accentuated and their weaknesses improved with man-made ditches, banks, terraces, palisades and platforms to throw rocks or stab spears from. Meaning, if the attacking army could only approach from one side due to cliffs or the sea, then putting ditches, palisades and other defences on that one side would get in the army's way and hinder them even more. Often, these man-made defences were put into layers, such as palisades interspersed with trenches, so that if the attackers broke through the first palisade, the defenders could retreat behind the next one, and also have the advantage of the enemy being in a trench, which also had the bonus of getting the enemy quite puffed as they had to go up and down through the trenches. If you're familiar with the Theodosian walls of Constantinople, it's Kind of the same idea as that. And since Māori didn't have any siege equipment, a frontal assault would often involve cutting or pulling down a palisade, which was difficult to do, even more so when you're being stabbed from above and behind the palisade by the defenders. Just like medieval castles or other defensive structures throughout history, a direct assault usually wasn't the best way to attack a par. Other, less direct methods were often employed to get inside and capture it, such as a man on the inside opening the gates, or luring the defenders out somehow with a bit of trickery. We'll talk more about strategy in a later episode. The par could even be set on fire, but this was risky, because they were pretty much entirely made of wood. So if the whole place went up, then the attackers wouldn't be able to use the par, if that was their intention. And if the wind changed, then the bush around the par could go up as well, and that would be bad for everyone. Par on top of the volcanoes of Auckland and the Bay of Islands didn't tend to have trenches. Instead, Māori built large terraces going up the hill with palisades on each to hinder enemy armies. These terraces would be connected by paths or ladders to allow allies to pass through in times of peace. A good example of this is Maunga Fo, Mount Eden in Auckland. The terraces are easily visible on the side of the hill. Just imagine wooden palisades being put at the top of each one. These par could potentially hold thousands of people within, so they were pretty massive forts. Par in Taranaki, Bay of Plenty and Waikato, by comparison, were smaller, usually having ramparts and trenches as opposed to terraces. Taranaki par were also said to have a large watchtower at the main entrance. 
Nazi Perot and those on the East Coast didn't seem to have too many complicated par, as the forests and hills on the inland side, combined with the coasts being quite rocky and unfriendly to a naval landing, gave really good natural defence. But they did have some earthen walls, ditches and palisades on some par. Pa in Whanganui didn't tend to be too elaborate either, as well as there just being less of them. The ones that were there tended to be built along the Whanganui River, with trenches and palisades, or on cliffs overlooking the river, so that they could pelt the enemies with projectiles and control who came and went. Putting Pa in difficult locations was a double-edged sword though. Keep in mind that building Pa was a very long and energy-intensive process. Just the act of cutting down trees with stone tools could take days, even with the help of burning the base with fire. The log would then need to be dragged to the Pa site, up the hill or on the headland, and erected a process that would need to be repeated a few hundred times to build the palisade. And that's ignoring any earthworks being made without metal shovels. Instead, they used rapamaire, wooden shovels made of maire. When these ditches were dug, the dirt would be piled next to the ditch to form a peak and trough that would be hard to overcome when attacking. Otherwise, the ditch might be left to fill up with water and then let out so that the flow would take some of the dirt material with it, making the process just slightly less labour-intensive. However, when muskets arrived, a lot of these considerations didn't matter as much, and so what we see with par-built after about 1800 is that they are quite different in their design. We won't talk about that here though, as that's a wee ways off yet. To construct palisades, timber was struck into the ground vertically, and then some rails lashed on horizontally to strengthen it. Some posts were larger at intervals along the palisade to give it even more strength. Sometimes these larger posts would be carved at the top to have human figures, or sometimes the top edge might be rounded. The entrance to the par would often be well decorated, with big posts carved all the way up, depicting tanifa, manaya, or human figures with power eyes. Sometimes the entrance might be a post itself that is heavily carved, and you have to go through the base of it to get into the par. Another strategy was to put a stockade in front of the entrance. This would mean that anyone wanting to go straight for the gate would have to go left or right and then around, doubling back on themselves and then into the gate. Which is fine if you're an ally just strolling in, less good if you're trying to assault it and the par defenders are throwing shit or stabbing you. Behind the palisades would be platforms, called puhara, that a guardsman could stand on to keep watch and thrust spears or throw rocks from if the enemy was trying to attack. The types of wood used to make these defences were hard woods, like tōtara, pūriri or kōwhai. 
If people of different hapu occupied the same pa, smaller defences would be erected within the pa around the areas where each hapu lived, just in case they got into a scrap with each other. Not all pa were made the same though, and there were different names for pa types depending on what kind of defences they had, such as pa maioro, which has both palisades and earthworks, or pa tu watawata, which is a pa just with palisades. Once the pa was built, food, water and any other supplies like firewood needed to be carried uphill, perhaps through some rough terrain, to ensure the people inside would be comfortable. This was meant to be done by women, slaves or male non-combatants, since the toa were too tapu to touch the food. Kawe, the backpack things we talked about in previous episodes, were used to carry these items on their backs. Although the toa weren't doing the manual labour work, they weren't just sitting around. They would likely have tasks they needed to do in preparation for the defence of the pa. Jobs like mending palisades, digging ditches, cleaning or otherwise preparing weapons, and generally ensuring that the defences of the pa were well maintained and ready to go. As well as, of course, being on guard duty. Practicality was more important than tapu though. So there are some stories of toa carrying food or water to a pa when they shouldn't have because there was no one else to do it, or just because they were in a bit of a panic and were rushing to get things done, like if they were about to be attacked. Since their location was largely determined by military strategic factors, rather than agricultural or logistical ones, Pa often didn't have a water source they could draw from within the walls. Since they were often on top of hills, streams were hard to come by, and wells weren't a thing, so water during a siege was either kept in gourds or large wooden troughs, or even a waka. In some pa, they dug out an underground cistern that could be filled by hand if necessary. These were pretty rare though in part likely due to the lack of concrete or stone used in their construction, meaning that the soil needed to have low drainage, which probably wasn't the case everywhere. These methods of storing water were vital, since the nearest stream could be anywhere between 10 to 30 minutes walk away or more. However, Aotearoa is a rather wet country, so rainfall may have helped with this as well. It is possible that when a pa was under siege, that the attackers would allow a few of the defenders to leave the pa to gather water, or could be provided water by members of the attacking towa who were related to those inside and thus were trusted by both sides to enter and exit the pa at will. While it is possible that this courtesy was extended to everyone within the pa, it was probably more likely that only those who were related to the attackers were provided with food and water, as the attackers had a vested interest in seeing those people live. They probably didn't care too much about everyone else. 
In one case, a rangatira's son was allowed to leave the pa to get water for his father, since they were closely related to the attackers. However, when the son returned from the stream, the attackers noted he was carrying quite a few gourds, a lot more than would be needed for one or two people. So they stopped him and pierced all the gourds except for one, and then sent him on his way. As mentioned earlier, Pa didn't just stand alone, protecting and controlling the area around them. They sometimes had people living just outside the wall, tending to the gardens and other tasks, since the Pa itself usually wasn't big enough to house everyone. At least, not comfortably. They could house everyone if the Pa came under threat. Again, a lot of the area inside the layers of a Pa was often for food storage, and the central area was for the rangatira and their family. Additionally, those who lived in or around the Pa would often temporarily move to other villages to fish or hunt for a few weeks or months before returning. These sites could be lightly defended with stockades and such, so there were some intermediate forms of fortified village. Of course, there were also the regular kainā scattered around the local region that would benefit from the presence of a friendly pā, and allow the residents to retreat there if needed. This gave rise to the other name pā were sometimes called, kōhanga, which means nest, as in a nest to protect people. Along with the supporting villages, pa were often built to be part of a defensive network on multiple hills. In fact, Joseph Banks said that he saw an instance of every hill in sight having a pa on top of it. At Kaipara Head in Northland, there were a series of 20 pa built at the same time in the 18th century which either indicates that there was some sort of large migration to the area, possibly by multiple groups, or some sort of coordinated effort to build defensive structures in response to an external threat. This simultaneous building of PA in an area is seen all across the country, so there seems to have been a fair amount of coordination in their construction, regardless of the catalyst that prompted them to be built. When Apa learned that a towa was on its way, and the alarm sounded, everyone who lived outside the walls would grab up whatever they could and head inside. Often this meant running into the fields and digging up as much food as they could carry. They would also fill up gourds in a stream or lake, if there was one nearby, and take those with them too. This would ensure that the pa would have enough food for the near future, but also deny the enemy some free kai. Next time, it's going to be a bigger episode than normal, because I didn't want to split it up, but also thought it was pretty interesting. We're going to run through the construction, designs, and uses of the Māori ships of old. The Wakatoa. War Canoes. If you want to send me feedback, 
ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot, and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.